Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, from the team that brought you the Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Zach Glazer. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 415 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Lee Thompson about finding the sweet spot while negotiating. Today's podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists, Berkshire Receptionists, and Lawyers Lab. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned and we'll tell you more about them later on. So, Stephanie, we just got back from Cleocon. And I guess by the time this airs, we won't have just gotten back from it. But, you know, there are a lot of conferences that we go to that we participate in. And it going to Cleocon this year especially got me thinking about how does one approach going to a conference and get what they need personally out of one? Yeah. I think it's a great question because we had some of our lab members there at Clio that we connected with. We talked to a lot of people. And one thing I definitely heard from some of our labsters, especially, was they feel like they're advanced users. Mm -hmm. And so what blew their minds five years ago when they went to a conference and heard something from the first time? Now they know it. Now they're like, oh, I've already heard these things. Like, I don't need this level of instruction. I need something different. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think you have to go in with a new plan about what it is you're trying to get out of a conference, you know, when you're going, especially if you're going to a big one like that, that does cater to a lot of people. Right. Because it's not fair to ask a company like Clio, you know, putting on ClioCon to have everything for everybody, to have advanced issues for family law. But still, we, we want to continue to go back to ClioCon. We want to continue to go back to Tech Show and to be able to get something out of it. How can people do that themselves, even at these sorts of conferences? Yeah, I mean, one shout out to the conference planners. I think there is a way to create different levels of community at your conferences. And we do that at LabCon, where we now are very intentional about, hey, this group is for users who are at this stage of their business. And this group's going to be for like the beginners, right? Because we've realized as we've had our conference for a number of years, that you need to evolve as your audience also evolves. Mm -hmm. So one, I'd like to just say, I think conferences, there's a way to do it. I mean, call me if you want my ideas. But <laughs> also, for the listeners, if you're the attendee, what is it that you want to get out of this experience? I mean, networking and connecting with other users is a great thing to do, especially because these are often pulling from a national audience. Mm -hmm. I talked to a labster this morning and he was like, at a great time at Clio, I went in and I wanted to meet these three people and learn this one new thing. Mm -hmm. And he did. And he did. And like, he felt like that was worth his trip. And so he was happy blowing off other sessions that he knew weren't going to be useful to him because he was connecting with those people or learning that skill. Right. So I think if you go in with a really clear idea around maybe some other things you'd like to accomplish, then that would help. If you're new to the scene, obviously all the sessions are going to be amazing. I mean, I had so many people who were like, this was amazing. I hadn't thought about this. Absolutely. What we're really talking about now is for people who've been going to this thing year after year, and how do you still make it relevant 
if you're in a different place in your business. Mm -hmm. And these are the people that they still want to go to something like CleoCon or Tech Show. And, and these conferences are still putting you know great information out there. How can we hone it for ourselves as kind of advanced users? And I, and I think that's a good point of how do we make these connections? Because something like CleoCon draws a lot of users from across the country and frankly, from across the globe. We had labsters there coming from from Switzerland. Yeah. And Brazil and Canada. <laughs> and Brazil and Canada. And so I think creating the relationships, having one-on-one -on -one sessions with people, teasing out information from what we got in these sessions from some of these great speakers. There were, you know, some wonderful speakers at ClioCon. Yeah, for sure. And also knowing that this is a great place to connect with vendors, right? If you're mm. in the market for a new piece of technology, you can go and actually demo four or five different tools or however many tools, but like of a particular type on the exhibit hall floor and have those conversations with people and ask the people who are designing the products, like, can it do this thing? Show me how it solves this problem. There's a lot of different reasons to go to a conference and you just need to be thoughtful about why are you going to this particular event and what do you hope to get out of it and then make sure that you do. Mm -hmm. Well, now here is Stephanie's conversation with Lee. Hi, I'm Lee Thompson. I'm a professor at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. I'm the author of the book, Negotiating the Sweet Spot, The Art of Leaving Nothing on the Table. I primarily teach MBA students and executive MBA students, but I do have students pursuing JD MBAs. And so I have sympathy, empathy, and a lot of respect for attorneys. And I'm thrilled to be here. Yes. Well, thank you. We are excited to have you. And I thought before we dig into, you know, the nitty gritty of, of negotiating, I, ha I had a kind of a maybe an interesting question for you, which is up until now, before I read your book, I think everything I have read that's written about negotiating has been written by a man. So I'm curious, being a woman, how you see that, if that impacted your approach or your research or, or how oh, you... Yes. It absolutely did. So I have some stories to tell. It's kind of pay it forward, pay it backwards. So here I am. I'm an alleged negotiation expert, right? So I am sitting in my first job in my office, kind of workaholic, trying to get tenure. And I had a colleague, female, this is like 8 p.m. at night, poke her head in my office. And she looked at me and she said, you know what, Lee, you're underpaid. And I said, oh my gosh, that's horrific news. And she goes, we're at a state university do something about it. And I knew what she was saying. So I marched over to the library. This was kind of before you could get a whole bunch of stuff on the internet. And I was able to get everybody's salaries. And I made like a, an Excel file and I made bar charts and I made trajectories and I kind of got my act together. And I went into my chairperson and I came in with the language of here's my research, help me understand. And I'm not kidding. Three days later, my phone rang. It was the Dean of the Arts and Sciences saying, we're giving you a pay raise. So it's a true story. And so point of the story is, is that if it hadn't been for my colleague poking her head in the office, I would have probably continued to just be underpaid workaholic. But I didn't come in and make demands. I kind of presented my evidence-based argument. So it's really tricky being a woman. And, and I started studying males and females at the negotiation table, holding everything constant. 
men tend to do better than women. And, you know, it's not because the woman is not trying. It's because there's this creepy thing called backlash. And the whole idea there is, I think you should be grateful. Uh, You should be lucky to be working here. And so women are met with, in some sense, more negative responses when they ask for it. So that puts us in a dilemma, right? So should I just be kind of happy and poor and nice? Or should I kind of lean in and maybe risk having somebody think I'm ungrateful? So I kind of decide I better opt for the, the second choice, especially in today's economy. So I coach women all the time on this is how to do the ask, but avoid the backlash. Yeah. And it's a fine thing to do. So to me, the answer to your question is why are the men all writing the negotiation books? I think that for some reason, their publishing contracts are being accepted more than the woman's uh, book publishing contract. So I'm all about, it's important to ask. The more you do it, the better you get. And there's a way to do it. Yeah. And I guess too, I don't, I mean, you, it's your book. So you, you, you'll go with this or tell me I'm completely wrong, but even the whole approach you take is negotiating the sweet spot. And I'd love for you Mm. obviously to tell us what you mean by that and what the sweet spot is. And I think there were so many times in reading this book that I thought, huh, this is contrary to everything I've heard before. And so I'm, I was also like, just kind of curious of like, if you being a woman mean meant also that you approach negotiating the idea that we can find the sweet spot. So I guess like we should just tell the listeners, I think the point you're trying to make is we can all be winners if we figure out what each person's interests are and how do we get to that place in a negotiation. That's 100% correct. So th- there's a story that changed my life. So I was pursuing the world's most boring dissertation thesis and I traveled across campus. I found myself in a business school and I thought, okay, I might as well sit in for the first course. And we were reading this kind of arcane type of article written by a female management science scholar from like back in the day, like the 40s or 50s. Anyway, here's the story. There's two sisters. Presumably they love each other. They have a history, they have a future, but they're quarreling over a single orange. And in an effort to keep the relationship intact, they decide to do the completely logical thing of cutting it exactly in half. One sister takes her half, squeezes out the juice, throws the peel away. The other sister takes her half, carefully zests the peel to make, I don't know, scones, and then throws the juice away. And then the garbage truck comes and goes. Ay, ay, ay. It's only then that they have the realization that one of them only wanted the peel and the other wanted only the juice. And now it was too late. This is the world's silliest story that I started to find methodologies to see whether business people do this in business negotiations. And I found evidence that on average, 80% of people are throwing away 20% of the orange, which makes absolutely no sense. And so then I started calculating like, oh my gosh, what does this add up to? So that's what we mean by the sweet spot. It's not divide things in half and fair and square and even Stephen and all these phrases that we've learned. It's look, if there's an orange on this table between us, by all means, let's find it because our instinct is to cut things in half. Somebody told us to do that in first grade to be nice and it's bad advice. Yeah. When I read that, I just also had the big light bulb where I was like, oh, yeah. And how often do we enter negotiations, which 
could be on behalf of our clients or just for ourselves. I mean, we're negotiating all the time where we don't stop and say, wait, what is it that I really want? What is my objective here? And what could the other side's objective be? Right. That's absolutely right. So I usually tell my my students, whether they're JD MBAs or MBA students, like chances are there's an orange. And so your job is to figure out, you know, how to find it and leverage it. You know, sometimes life doesn't give us what we call a multidimensional negotiation. So I'll be the first one to say that if the negotiation is just about price, if it's just about what I'm going to charge you for the used car, it's really what we call a fixed sum negotiation. However much you gain, I lose. But if it's like, oh, do you want a cashier's check or can I bring, you know, buy a down payment and, you know, I'll do the pay for the title change. I'm kind of making some stuff up right now. But if there's at least one other issue, we have the potential that there could be an orange. Got it. Makes sense. And so is there advice like on the front end that you give people, like how should we maybe start differently so that we can start looking for oranges? Yeah. See, I think that that's the real critical question. So usually what we've read that you're saying, oh my gosh, everything we've read seems to be wrong. Usually what we've read is in some sense, what's that term? Keep a poker face, Mm -hmm. which translates into, I'm not going to tell Stephanie anything. And the other thing that we've read is make the other party talk first. Well, here's my point of view. My point of view is you've got to assume that the person on the other side of the table is just as smart and motivated as you are. And whatever book you've read, they probably read it too. And so we have to have, you know, we have to have a method for that. So here's what you should and shouldn't tell the other party. Never tell the opponent, I hate using that language. Let's say, never tell the counterparty your BATNA, B-A-T-N-A, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So I would certainly never say to you, hey, if you don't rent this apartment that I guess I'm you know, trying to lease to somebody, my next best alternative is to rent it to my my sister's, you know, kid and they're going to pay, you know, $100 a month. That would that would not be a good idea because I don't really have a good plan B. All right, so I usually tell people, attorneys included, don't reveal your batna because that's your ace card, but what you do want to tell the other person is what parts of the orange you care about most. So I might say, look, for every inch of peel that you give me, I will give you more juice. Now that's an absurd example, but in a business context, it might be like, look, if you and I are doing some kind of a joint project and there's IT needs and then there's research needs and there's staffing needs, maybe I care more about having the IT needs being met and I have the staffing and vice versa for you. So that's the type of thing that I would want to signal. The other thing is I tell people, you got to be a first mover. Like every single published paper suggests that most of the time, it's to your advantage to make the opening offer. There is an exception to that. If you've done more due diligence on me than I've done on you, don't make the opening offer because then you run the risk of the winner's curse. (laughs) I sound like a business person right now. Winner's curse. What are we talking about? If I'm negotiating with you, Stephanie, and I say, look, I want you to pay X for my services. And you say, great, no problem. Where do I make out the check? If you immediately accept my opening offer, I haven't asked for enough. 
that means I haven't done my due diligence. So what you want to do is you want to make the opening offer, you know, pretty assertive, but you don't want to insult the other party. You're going to try to anchor the other party. Yeah. I mean, that resonates to what you said is if, if you're the one who makes the opening offer, you do just that. You just anchored us of, are we talking about $5,000 or $15,000? Because, exactly. Because if I thought we were talking about 15 and you start with five, chances are I'm not going to get you to 15. But if I nope. start with my 15, you might realize, oh, we're not at five. Yeah. And I got a couple more things to say about that because opening offers are so important. I tell all of my JD, MBA, and my MBA students, your opening offer is going to make or break you. I say, look, I don't want to scare you, but there's so many people who don't plan their opening offer. That's a huge mistake. If you don't plan it, you're going to be anchored psychologically by the other side. But here's my, my feeling. To the extent that you can be precise and not use a round number, we know from research that that will have more of a psychological anchoring effect. And what you don't want to do, I tell them, please don't state a range. People state ranges to seem, oh, I'm nice, I'm flexible. People are only going to listen to the part of the range that's good for them. So I'd rather have you make a specific point offer. Mm, interesting. Yeah, no, I've read that as well. One of the things you also talk about is that it's okay to describe what the process of the negotiation is going to be on the front end, that you kind of come in and you can set a groundwork because a lot of people make assumptions about what a negotiation is going to look like and how it's going to work. And maybe we're not aligned or on the same page. Absolutely. And maybe you and I have had some animosity through email or through whatever's gone on. And so I'm arriving at the negotiation table already kind of assuming the worst about you. So one of the most effective things that I coach people to do that you just talked about is if you can get the other party to agree on the process, you've already agreed on one thing. And in the book, I write about this brilliant kind of move that one of these leaders made and said, look, you know, everybody feels very emotional about this discussion, myself included, but my ultimate goal is to reach an agreement here today. Is that your goal too? And everybody said, oh yeah, absolutely. That would be certainly wonderful to, to reach agreement and not kind of protract this, you know, very expensive conflict. So yeah. by just doing that to avoid the lawyers, you can say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we love attorneys, but sometimes people don't want to involve them because I hate to say this so bluntly, because they can, in some sense, eat up some of the Zopa. Hmm. Again, I've used another business term, zone of possible agreement. So if you and I are transacting, we're business people and we can reach a mutual agreement, then we're going to share those resources. If I'm having to pay an attorney, you're having to pay an attorney, you know, X percent of what we're doing. So there's more kind of, kind of more uh, mouths to feed. Yeah, that makes sense. And so agreeing on the process is a place where we can all just kind of get on the same page. And, and I think what I read too, is it opens the possibility of, Hey, let's do some brainstorming or let's share what our interest is. I'm interested, right. I'm interested in the peel the most and the juice second. What about you? Right. And that's not something that I thought typically happens, or maybe it does, but I just, it was a surprise to me. Right. Because <laughs> one of the things that I did my dissertation on several hundred years ago was this phenomena called the fixed pie perception. 
which is the usually unfounded assumption that whatever I want, you want the opposite. And so I just kind of project my own value drivers on you. And I think, well, if the peel is most important to me, then Stephanie's only going to care about that. And of course, you and I know that the statistical likelihood of that always being the case has got to be be low. But I want to give the listeners two strategies besides just like, oh, I'm going to talk about an orange because sometimes people say, look, I don't trust you. I have no intention of talking about an orange with you. I've seen that like conversation killer. So in the book, I talk about the dessert tray method. It's my favorite. So I got to explain it. And that's where what you do is you tell the, the counterparty, like, look, there's three ways that I can see us resolving this issue or engaging in this transaction. And you've come up with three different packages. You could call them A, B, and C. You could call them a creme brulee or whatever you might want to do. And here's the key. And I cannot emphasize this enough. All three packages need to be of equivalent value to yourself. And I do have an example. This is a business example. Please forgive me. So there was a sales leader in a major airline and the customer was being very aggressive, actually threatening to go to competitors and get better pricing. And so the salesperson said, I totally respect that. You should shop around. But before you go, I want to make you three possible term sheets. Each one of these term sheets will contain, in some sense, the size of the party. You know, he was purchasing charter flights. It will have amenities. It will have, you know, rebooking fees and it will have, you know, kind of, I guess, certain things about uh, future bookings. I'm going to call them A, B, and C. All of these were of equal value for the salesperson, but he noticed immediately the customer was saying, I want to hear a lot more about what you're describing as dessert number B. And immediately my salesperson was able to use inductive reasoning to figure out, you know what, this customer hasn't said it because he doesn't trust me, but he must care a lot about, you know, the ability to, you know, change the booking or change the size of the party. And so he managed to keep the customer from going to the competitor but he found a way to figure out the opponent's value drivers without having an explicit conversation. So I just thought that that was a really clever way to say, before you go, I'm going to give you an A, B, and a C. Yeah, I love that. And and by doing that, you're listening and getting that feedback of and hearing which one, and now we know which path we want to go down. Makes sense. Yes. There's another strategy that I I was thinking maybe I shouldn't talk about this in front of attorneys, because I know that attorneys often like to get the contract signed and then, you know, that's, is what it is. So in this method, and then the book, I call it the Columbo method. I'm old enough to remember a really old TV show that involved a bumbling detective played by Peter Falk. And it just seemed like he would be so close to the bad guy and then the bad guy would think, oh my gosh, Columbo is leaving. But then Columbo would say just one more thing. Anyway, so in this strategy, I encourage people to act like Peter Falk. And instead of just getting the heck out, you kind of say just one more thing. So in this strategy, what you do is say, you know, Stephanie, you and I have just signed a contract and we've already sent it to the attorneys. This is a legal contract. It's a binding contract. Why don't you and I now brainstorm to see whether we could improve upon the contracted terms in a way that 
gives you a better outcome and me a better outcome. So it'd be almost like the sisters who'd cut the orange in half say, we're cool, we're cool, we're cool. But now let's brainstorm to see whether we can come up with a different division of the orange that will be simultaneously better for both of us. Now, the thing that I love about this strategy, this is the only time in life where I have identical incentives to you, meaning the only way I'm going to get more of the orange is if I find a way for Stephanie to get more more of the orange. And I have lots of stories in my book about people who did such things. So you have that security blanket called a contract. And now you're doing some brainstorming to see, oh, if we tweak this, if I kind of pay you 10 more percent, but I give you a little bit more kind of ownership or something. So that's one of my favorite strategies, but it kind of goes against most of our need for closure. Yeah. I can almost feel our listeners probably like gasping right now because it does. Gasping, <laughs> gasping. Yes. But, yes. but I could see where it could work under the right conditions. And you, like you said, we know we have an agreement. So this, the pressure's off and we can relax and take a breath and then we can approach it with a new, fresh focus. And that's it. I like the way you said the pressure's off. And I tell my students and I tell my JD MBA students, this is not a do over this is a do better. This is not a let's start from scratch because that would be bargaining in bad faith. Yeah. We need to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to shift the conversation a little bit to communication styles. 30% of calls to a lawyer will result in a new client. How many calls do you miss while at court, during a meeting, or while spending quality time with your family? Berkshire Receptionists is a group of highly trained U.S.-based 24-7 legal receptionists who have provided concierge service to law firms for over 80 years. They'll answer your phone, transfer your calls, schedule appointments, perform lead intake, and much more. They're there when you need them at a price that just makes sense. Call now and receive up to $100 in savings on your first month of service at 866-928-5757 or visit BerkshireReceptionist.com slash lawyerist to get started. Does your firm give you freedom? Do you feel confident about what you're building? Are you in control of your schedule, focused on the right things? If not, maybe it's time for some help. Lawyerist Lab is here to help you build a healthier business. Lawyers in our program are building profitable businesses that can run without them so they can take that six-week trip to Europe. They're finding joy in being business owners. Sound interesting? Schedule a 10-minute, no-pressure call with me, Sarah by clicking the link in the show notes or go to lawyerist.com forward slash coaching. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call while you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case? Well, that's where Posh comes in. They're a team of professional US-based live virtual receptionists available 24-7, 365. They answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity and you can devote more time to building your law firm. And with the Posh app, you're in total control of when your receptionist steps in. You can save as much as 40% of your current provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to Lawyerist listeners. Visit posh.com slash lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Services. I'm back with Lee, and you've just given us all this great information about how we can approach negotiating differently to find that sweet spot. And I'll just go ahead and say that the book is 
packed with all these hacks is what you call them, which I love of approaches and things you can do inside a negotiation and thinking about the negotiation. And we're obviously not going to cover all of them. But the other thing that you do in this book that was really important and helpful to me is you started to think about just relationships and behaviors and how we behave with one another, which it makes sense obviously is going to impact a negotiation. It's not just about like what we say, but it's all this other stuff that's going on. And a lot of it, when I was reading the book, it seemed really relevant to me, even as like employers and employees or with my spouse and how I might negotiate with him and how we communicate with each other. So I thought maybe it would be helpful to just tackle a few of those, the traps that we fall into. And I guess the other sense that you're really focused on now is how much more complicated it is now in a virtual world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. There's kind of three parts of the book. One is kind of how do you negotiate with people who are in your personal life that you presumably love? There's another section on business, workplace negotiations. And then there was this virtual section. But I must say, I had lots of fun writing each section, especially the ones that take me out of my own business comfort zone. But one of my favorite studies that I wish to heaven I'd done involved newlyweds, married people, long-term dating partners who presumably love each other. And the control group was complete strangers. And then the question was, well, who's going to find the bigger orange? And I always tell my students, now think about your answer because our gut tells us, oh, the people who love each other, the people who work in small businesses, the people who have these long-term, you know, family-like offices. And I say, oh boy, Actually, the newlyweds and the dating couples completely suboptimize. They immediately cut the orange in, in half because they don't want to rock the boat. They somehow think, oh my gosh, it'd be so unpleasant to have any kind of disagreement with these people who are in my small office. And so what I try to do in this book is kind of get away from this idea that conflict or negotiation means that we don't like each other. Right. And so I often counsel people to say, look, if you're negotiating with like a roommate or somebody who is a business partner who you probably do have a personal relationship with, you know, use the research in the book. Just say, you know, I've heard that people who are in these long term relationships oftentimes sub optimize. So let's, you know, talk this through so that we end up with the sweet spot, not kind of the sour spot. Yeah. No, as I was reading it one day, my husband was nearby and I think I was on that section and I was like, oh, this is interesting. He was like, what? I'm like, well, apparently we don't really talk to each other very directly because we're so used to being around each other that we just assume or we we leave that out critical information that if you were someone not close to me, I would be very direct on this is what I need and this is how I need it. But you're my husband. So I kind of tell you half things and just expect you'll figure it out because you know me so well. Right. And that leads us to disaster sometimes. So, well, yeah. right. Or it leads you to be sitting in a restaurant that is both of your second choice because somehow I thought you wanted to go here. I, I've had couples tell me they've gone on vacations and it's just like, oh, seriously, both of us would have rather been in the mountains. Why are we at the beach? I don't know. I mean, those are not too crazy of examples, but it can also happen again. You know, a lot of business people don't have an arm's length you know, relationship with their suppliers and customers. They consider them partners. They they have very, you know, long-term relationships and the people come first. And, and it's great when the people come first, 
but there's certain steps that we have to take to make sure that we are not throwing away 20% of the orange or in the, Oh, I was just saying, like, you also talked about, like, we don't want to hurt other people's feelings or we think we, we can handle it. We're tough, but, but you're not. So if I'm going to give you, you're my employee and I need to give you feedback, I need to cloak it or I need to somehow soften it up because you're not going to be able to take what is harsh or critical, probably just clear and direct, quite frankly. That's absolutely right. So in the book, we talk about this research that we uncovered where people think, you know what, just give me the facts. I can handle it. I'm going to embrace feedback. You need me to be, you know, filing more of these, you know, whatever. But people think that if they challenge others, that they'll completely fall apart and it will damage the relationship. So of course leads to, you know, kind of this double speak where I need to read between the lines. So Again, I think it's kind of hard for a lot of us who work in, you know, small firms to all of a sudden change our behavior that we've been doing for the past 8, 10, 15 years. But again, my entry point is always, you know, I heard about this research. I certainly don't want to be a statistic. I'm trying to work on my communication skills. So let me just kind of put this out there. I want to test some assumptions so that we don't end up sub optimizing when maybe there's a better solution. Yeah, perfect. We don't have too much time left, but before I let you go, what are your top tips for us now in a virtual world when we're doing so much negotiation and just business in general online on Zoom? Here are my top tips. In the book, I talk about this research that we did on the importance of having a five-minute personal conversation before you jump into business. So people do that naturally when they're physically co-present. Oh, hey, how are you doing? Is it a nice day? And that releases all this like oxytocin and dopamine. And I I trust you until you give me a reason not to. Trust is the default, unless for some reason you give me a reason not to. Virtually, we don't do that because we tend to be pretty transactional. We don't have that mutual gaze. So what I tell people to do is to say, look, Stephanie, you and I have some business matters to jump into. I know I'm prepared to do that, but I just thought before we jump into business matters, why don't we just do a three-minute check-in? I'd love to tell you kind of, you know, what's going on in my world, would love to know more about you, and then we can move into the business at hand. So that way you can kind of say, there's a reason why I'm doing this. The other thing I'm going to say, and people don't like me when I say this, turn on your camera. I mean, we have seen several hundred thousand dollar differences in our business simulations when people just turn on the camera. The reason why I hesitate saying this is, is that there is some research on Zoom fatigue, but turn on the camera at least during the first five minutes. And then I might say, you know what, I'm going to turn my camera off because I've got some workers in the background or something like that. Turn on the camera initially because that kind of builds that trust that we've talked about because you definitely want trust to be the the default. So those are the the top two tips that I give for negotiating when we're non-face-to-face. The other tip, and again, I want the attorneys to take this with a grain of salt. If there is going to be a conflict or pushback, it's much better for us to discuss that synchronously rather than asynchronously. I cannot tell you how many a business deal was completely torched because people banged off an email. 
So I actually work with one company. They happen to be a small company and they say, look, here's the new policy. Nothing but good news and updates should be sent via email because that starts the conflict spiral. Pick up the phone, have this real-time conversation. So those are my top virtual tips. Yeah, those are great. The book is Negotiating the Sweet Spot, The Art of Leaving Nothing on the Table. I recommend it to everyone. I think it just, I welcome the new perspective because that really was what it was for me in, and maybe also of more female voices. We know we need that in the business world. And so I was really excited to find the book and then to be able to talk to you about it today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This, this was a joy and a pleasure to have an opportunity to talk about it. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10 minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.